tennis.com podcast. And here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hey everyone, tennis.com podcast. I'm back with the usual crew, Pete Bodo, Steve Tigner. I'm Ed McGrogan, and we're getting together after the Monte Carlo Masters final, um, the latest installment in Nadal Djokovic. And what I had these two gentlemen do over the weekend was take one player uh, from the final to write about. In the end, it was a Nadal uh, 6-3, 6-1 win, uh, you know, a scoreline that I don't think anybody would have really predicted. Um, and I asked Steve to talk about Djokovic, and uh, he wrote about that in the site. So I'm going to actually ask him about Nadal now, um, maybe some thoughts about that since, of course, you watched the whole thing and you couldn't, you know, there's a lot to be said for both guys. So what about Nadal from your take? Yeah, Steve? I think Rafa, um, you know, obviously Djokovic wasn't at his best. Uh, he wasn't completely, completely into it or committed to it. Um, but I think, I think Rafa, if he focuses on his own game, can take a lot from this. I think he'll be... You know, in terms of the rivalry, he'll be more relaxed um, when he plays Djokovic next time. After just after getting over that hump of of um, seven straight losses, but as far as his own game, he played well. He served. He you know was more emphasis on on his serve, which worked well, and that kind of ne- neutralized Djokovic's re- Djokovic's return. And he kept the ball deeper. He looked for his forehand more. He hit his backhand well. All those things. I think if he if he focuses on that rather than you know whether Djokovic was fully into it or not. It's a pretty positive result for Rafa. Pete, what about you for um, Djokovic? Since you wrote about Nadal, well, give me s- some thoughts about you know what Djokovic was up against there, and you know both against Nadal and against other circumstances. Too. Well, I think the encouraging thing for for Djokovic to me is that he played. He he was pretty pretty clearly off on that day. So you know, um, and still, I think there was too many points where Nadal was playing from a really defensive position. And now, you know, when Djokovic was really at his peak last year, those defensive positions did not pay off. Nadal would, you know, get the ball back, make a wild get, you know, come back with a little something of his own, but then Djokovic would handle that. And, and so I don't think, I think that, I think that this rivalry is going to go to the guy who controls the baseline. That's it. Who says, you know, do not pass you. Do not get by me on the baseline. You do not push me too far back. I think that's going to be all other things being equal. That's going to be the decider. And in that regard, I just didn't see that much from Nadal. He played great defensive tennis. He made great gets. He was very tough. You know, as Steve said, he served very well. No question about that. So I think there's. I think there's. You, you got to kind of leave room for that big issue that yet is yet to be resolved. The big thing with Djokovic to me is, you know, who's the real Novak Djokovic? That's what we're going to see. Because now, you know, the guy's playing great, but he's not playing like he did in 2011. You know, you can't blame him. You know, he's, it's hard to hit that level again. But, you know, we, we've seen Djokovic go up and down a little bit through the years. He seems to be doing that a little bit now. Either that or he's calibrating himself to really focus well, it, just yeah, on big events. Yeah, it is a big... Um clay slog coming up and that's one thing i wanted to to make mention of is is how early in this month and a half long stretch of tournaments of mostly big tournaments that these three will these two will be playing in that monte carlo occurred in and and i i guess you want to wonder when you think about what this result means down the road french open still a long way away and there's still two other big tournaments um you know, how, I guess, what do you guys think about this one resonating for, you know, f- for the long haul? Or do we, or do, does whatever happens in Rome and Madrid kind of really put this to the side? I think um, from Djokovic's perspective, it's true that this year he hasn't been quite the player. He's been a little more agitated, quite the player he was last year. Um, but this was also a special case. You know, this one, 
this one doesn't necessarily to me mean that Nadal has the upper hand in this going into those these two next two tournaments, you know, Madrid and Rome. Take those together and then and then we'll see. I think it does help Rafa and his and his psyche, but I don't think it I don't think it hurts Djokovic. Maybe it makes him a little more focused even to you know to get back to get that advantage back in the next except steve i think the there was tournament. a this was a pretty big moment for Nafa, for rafa to hit the reset button don't you think you know i mean literally the beginning of the season mm-hmm. this is where Djokovic did most of his damage last year in terms of the psychological impact of being able to beat nadal regularly so i mean i think this win was worth a lot more than it maybe mm-hmm. it appears in terms of putting them back on even footing going forward. And I don't think Djokovic has shown that much on the clay. Now, granted, the circumstances were unusual, but we can only go on the evidence at hand to, to make us think that he's going to go out there and do what he did last year. Well, Nadal's two best seasons, you know, forgetting Djokovic, his two best seasons began in Monte Carlo, two, 2008 and 2010. Both of those years, he really started his, his run. He finished the year at number one, finished with, started with wins in Monte Carlo. He hadn't done that much leading up to um to Monte Carlo those two years. So that you know that's the you know that's sort of the pattern for Rafa and, and he's he's hitting it And again. this was his first title and just like two thousand twelve, um, yeah. And you know, almost a year long start. Now P you said you now about Nadal being on the defensive a lot. Djokovic did miss a lot of um were you, are you implying that he he got he still had the shots, he just didn't really make them as well or, or because he was he was getting a lot of balls, a lot of forehands, especially into the net. But he was getting those up on the baseline. I think is what you're saying there. Well, no, what I'm saying is, is you know, the the old the old control controlling that baseline area and up until a few feet into the court to be able to play in there and do damage is which is what I think the formula for beating Nadal. I don't think Djokovic was able to do that, you know, in Monte Carlo because he was all form. He, you know, he hit the inside out forehand way out or, you know, his backhand didn't get enough penetration, whatever. So, you know, I, I still think that's going to determine how these matches go myself because that's, you know, because that's really what made these matches so close. I think in Australia, you know, in their last great match in Australia was, was, was that sort of setup. And I think Nadal's at a real disadvantage here because the guy's never had to play with any urgency on clay. He's always been able to say, all right, bring your game. Here I am. He's been, he's been able to play from 10 feet behind a base baseline and be Federer and, and a bunch of other people. So, you know, why not? I just don't think that if Djokovic can play anything like he played last year, I don't think that's going to get the job done against him. I just watched, um, I just watched their match in Rome last year. And the two differences I saw from that match to this match were Djokovic's forehand was much flatter and better, uh, more penetrating in Rome last year than it was in Monte Carlo. He was a little, he was sort of less willing to go after it yesterday. He was also just missing it more. And Rafa's backhand was better, um, this match, I feel like that's a big, that's a big thing for Nadal to hit his backhand with, you know, well in these matches because that's a real, generally a real disadvantage compared to Djokovic's backhand. It's funny you say that though because I was thinking about the same thing. I was looking at Djokovic's forehand and how relatively ineffective it was on Sunday compared to other times. Yet it's still his go-to shot because it's a setup shot. He loves to get Nadal set up so he can go and hit that big backhand down the line. We know how great his backhand is. We, you know, so I think he's using that inside-out forehand, you know, to really set up that backhand. In many cases, where you think he's just going for the winner. So you know, I, I think that's actually very true. I think he's going to need to be awfully good with that backhand to capitalize. On, on his forehand. You wonder if we were due for a match like this between these two because I'm thinking about you know almost all of their finals last year. Not everyone was a maximum set match, but so many of them were of just the utmost quality. And 
And, you know, this is the first kind of dud we've seen from them in a while. And I guess it just speaks to kind of, you know, in the past, how well both of them have played against each other. This is, you know, there's obviously different circumstances with Djokovic going on this week here. But um, it's, I think this also really showed just how strong this rivalry has become. Definitely, you know, in this time right now, certainly certainly the rivalry in men's tennis. And, you know, after six or seven just astoundingly great matches, you know, it took this long to kind of, you know, let the odds kind of come in. And, I think uh, that there was a time for Djokovic to lose to Rafa. This was the time. It's a little out from the French Open, a little early. He was going to lose to him at some point. So I don't think it, I don't think it's a crushing loss for Djokovic. Were, you, were either of you guys as surprised as I was that he played this? I mean, maybe I'm missing something here, but I mean, this is something I've harped on. Nobody of, seems to take it seriously. But, you know, I mean, yeah, why did he play Monte Carlo, which is totally Nadal's backyard territory. He, he skipped it last year. You know, he played Belgrade. His first event last year was on the vet in Belgrade. Then he went and he beat Rafa in Madrid and Rome. Now, you know, he didn't play that much more last year than this year. It's not like he needed that much more rest. I think he only played two more matches. So, you know, I don't know why. I mean, a part of me is wondering if it isn't because he's a resident of Monte Carlo. Maybe he's, you know, maybe they told him he's got to play, you know, if he wants to live there. I don't know. But why he would actually cho- choose to launch his clay court campaign in Monte Carlo on Nadal's home turf with the advantage, you know, so clearly as to Nadal on balance, it just baffles me. I don't know. But nobody, nobody else seems to be surprised by that. I get the feeling he just wanted judging from his what he said publicly anyway that he wanted to play it and didn't want to leave his french open preparation until until later um but i don't know anything more than that but that worked out pretty good for him last year i mean no he loses to federer in the semis but there's no shame in that it you worked know what out I mean? madrid and rome certainly yeah exactly madrid rome and then he gets to the semis that the french open loses to you know greatest player of all time so is that gonna is that a bad preparation it turned out pretty good overall i mean and he and djokovic has stressed the French Open much this year and maybe that I think is one of the reasons why Monte Carlo is on the schedule is just kind of needs all the maybe needs all the opportunities he wants against Nadal and and you know he knew he was going to get his best from Nadal here probably and you know not a it's it's not a bad it's not a bad way to to start at least the clay season here for Djokovic's perspective just see what Nadal can go, and he can only go up from here, actually. Well, that's the other option. He might be calibrating his schedule to win the French Open. I mean, he might be saying, you know what, I don't care. I'll lose every match from now. As long as I feel like I'm going into the French Open exactly the way I want to be, I'll be okay. The last events of this weekend, I wanted to make mention Fed Cup semis. Pete, never, um, never withholding a chance to talk about Fed Davis Cup. The old guard loses this weekend. Italy, Russia, both bowing out in semifinals, goes to Serbia and the Czech Republic, and that was also the return of Kvitova. Um, you know, we got to see it, of course, on the tour level, and and um, this week, starting the WTA Stuttgart, um, that's a pretty heavy draw, despite it being just 28 players. Steve just has a preview up on that now. Um, anything out of that preview, Steve, that, that this is, Azarenk is back as well this week, correct? Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a that's where the WTA is. It's their version of Monte Carlo getting the clay season really going underway in Europe right now. Who'd you pick to win, Steve? Um, I didn't make a pick. But it's interesting to me, you know, Azarenka is interesting in that her streak is over. Now we'll see whether that standard of play continues. And also, um, Redwanska is also interesting. So, you know, she's, you would see, it would seem like she would have a ceiling at a certain point with her lack of power that she could only go so high but she's gone all the way to number four in the world and she's she's also in this tournament she could play as a rank in the semis yeah yeah take a look at the preview tennis.com it's on right now 
For Pete, Steve, Ahmed, thanks for listening. Tennis.com podcast. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com. 